Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine, and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. So, first things first, great is a pretty subjective term, so I'm not going to drill down and try to define it further. In each episode, we're going to be looking at one great in a bit of detail, and not in any special order because I'm very much of the school of thought that whilst ratings are fun and led by certain statistics, they are emphatically not a science. Importantly, we're going to be mixing it up. These are horses from all around the major racing hubs in the world. We'll be exploring American, British, French, Australian, Irish, Japanese horses, and more. One thing I've tended to find with these discussions is that if you ask a racing fan in Europe who they think the 10 greatest horses were, which of course is impossible to prove anyway, they'll name you 10 European horses. Ask the same question to a racing aficionado in the United States, and guess what? They'll list 10 North American horses. So this podcast is about celebrating amazing horses from all around the world, regardless of flag. If you like what you hear about these great thoroughbreds, then you can find out more about them in my book, also called Punch a Hole in the Wind, and which is available in all the usual places. So why punch a hole in the wind? Well, it's a phrase that's been used on and off for years, especially in the US, when describing some of the heroes of the past, in that they were so fast, they could punch a hole in the wind. So there you go. I'll be focusing on great horses since the birth of that wonderful thing, the video camera. We all know that there were great horses before then, especially around Europe, but I prefer to actually see the horses I'm talking about actually running, rather than just looking at paintings of them, or reading reports of them by rather breathless Victorian journalists. One final thing. Horse races are measured around the world using different systems. In Australia and France, for example, it's the metric system. In the US, it's still about the imperial system of miles. In the UK, they prefer to use furlongs. And I'm going to be using that measurement not out of familiarity, but because the furlong is pretty much unique to horse racing, and therefore something to be celebrated. But for clarity, one furlong is 200 metres, or one-eighth of a mile, give or take. So, eight furlongs is 1,600 metres, or one mile. So with all that in mind, first up, we're going to go to perhaps the earliest of all the horses we're going to be exploring. And that is Man o War. In fact, we should be more than a little grateful to the nameless camera operator who filmed Man o War racing in 1920, considered in fact to be the first recording of a full horse race in North America. It means we can include him in this podcast without breaking that strict self-imposed criteria, just as well as omitting him would have rendered its whole integrity obsolete. He was the earliest great to be foaled of any of the ones I'm going to be talking about. And to many, he remains the near-mythical benchmark of equine perfection. By fair play, out of Mahuba, who was a daughter of English Triple Crown winner Roxanne, Manowar was sold as a yearling at the Saratoga sales for $5,000 to Pennsylvania textile magnate Samuel Riddle and put into training by Louis Feustel. Initially, it was touch and go as to whether he would ever race. Manowar was willful to the extreme and refused to be broken in. 
he was too smart by half. Eventually, he acceded, but the trainer would later say that the horse never forgave them. His 21 races were spread quite evenly across his two- and three-year-old seasons. He demonstrated a colossal stride that would only later be rivaled in North America by Secretariat and Native Dancer. He looked different too. Standing over 16.2 hands and an almost golden chestnut, his withers properly stuck out, his long back dipped much more than average, and he possessed an almost supercilious look in his eye. His first six races run over five and six furlongs, and starting with a six-length victory at Belmont Park, were all won in a canter. His fan club grew quickly, as word spread of a horse that was running like no other before. He was sent to the six-furlong Sanford Memorial Stakes at Saratoga, for what was planned to be another procession. But while Saratoga was at the time the US's premier racetrack, it also had a well-earned nickname, the Graveyard of Champions. We can easily forget that this was the era before starting stalls. There was nothing but a thin tape, and jockeys needed to position themselves well for the off. With Johnny Loftus aboard, as he would be throughout Big Red's first season, Manowar was facing fully backwards when the tape went up, losing many lengths. His immense stride caught him up with the pack, only for him to get boxed in by the tiring horses in front of him. Still he found a way through, but the finish line came just too quickly. Half a length of him in front was a well-regarded colt whom he had already beaten easily in a previous race at Saratoga, and to whom he was conceding £15. The colt's name, and you couldn't make it up, was Upset. Journalists and public alike, who had watched the hapless start and breathtaking finish, were unequivocal that only bad luck, and perhaps some poor jockeyship, accounted for the defeat. Thus his reputation, ironically, only grew in defeat. For the record, they met three times more over their careers, and Upset never again got near him. Then again, neither did any other thoroughbred. Man of War finished the year as two-year-old champion, a colossal 16 pounds clear of his nearest peer in the rankings. There would be no blemishes, unfortunate or otherwise, in Man of War's second season. That said, there was a glaring omission. He was not entered in the Kentucky Derby. The reasons were twofold, and one of them was utterly spurious. Riddle believed that a three-year-old shouldn't race as far as ten furlongs so early in the season. Second, the Preakness Stakes in that year was run only a few days later, and it was only his preferred target because of Pimlico's proximity to Riddle's farm, where Manor War had wintered. We shirk at the narrow-mindedness of it now, but it is worth recalling that the US Triple Crown as we know it now did not become recognised as such until the 1930s. Regardless, having never raced beyond six furlongs, and ridden by new jockey Clarence Cummer, he still won the Preakness in record time. Just 11 days later, he was back in Belmont Park, first winning the eight furlong wither stakes in a US record of 1 minute 35 and 4 fifths seconds, before, in June, destroying a class field in the Belmont stakes, then run over 11 furlongs by 20 lengths in a time of 2 minutes 14 seconds, a world record on dirt that would stand incredibly until 1991. Several more victories followed, sometimes with starting odds of 100 to 1 on, the stingiest anybody could remember in track history. 
Further superlatives were on show at the Lawrence Realisation Stakes at Saratoga, where every horse but one, Hoodwink, owned by Riddle's niece, had run scared, despite the $15,000 prize. Reports state clearly that Cummer did little more than sit quietly for 13 furlongs. Manowar still reduced the world record by nearly two seconds, to two minutes 40 and four-fifth seconds. And officially, he won by 100 lengths, the steward sensibly rounding it down to a memorable figure, as photos showed that Manowar had actually won by over two furlongs. Only once was he properly tested, facing only one opponent, the top-class John P. Greer in the Dwyer Stakes at Aqueduct, Big Red was still expected to win, despite carrying 18 pounds more. Manowar led for most of it, until the home stretch, when John P. Greer ranged up beside him. Clarence Cummer drew the whip on his mount, allowing the distance to grow, only for Eddie Ambrose on his opponent to do likewise and draw back level. This happened once more, before finally John P. Greer could take no more and wilted in the final furlong. The New York Times loved every minute of it. The contestants had set such a dazzling place from the very start that they seemed to fairly fly through space rather than to touch the ground. The world record for nine furlongs had predictably been broken too. After a few more facile successes, and with an enormous following fan club, Manowar's career finished with a match race for the 10 furlong Kenilworth Park Gold Cup in Ontario against Sir Barton, who had won the Triple Crown the previous year even if it had not been called that at the time. Here, finally, Big Red is captured at glorious full tilt on film, albeit at the accelerated frame speed of what was still primitive technology. We see him lead from the start, high head carriage reminiscent of Seabird many years later, and we see just how far before the end Kummer starts pulling him up, while still winning in absurdly easy fashion by seven lengths. With Man of War thereafter facing crippling handicap weights as a four-year-old, Riddle instead chose to retire his hero, but, quirky to the last, restricted his stallion to a mere 25 mares a year, many of which were either his own or those of friends. Living to the ripe old age of 30, Man of War still sired 64 stakes winners, War Admiral preeminent amongst them, but one feels it could have been so much more. His devoted stallion hand, Will Harbert, didn't care, calling him the mostest hoss that ever was. Certain racing and breeding experts, trying to take a more objective view, have called Manowar the sacred cow of US racing. The challenge is fair. In the same way that some considered it borderline illegal for a Brit to criticise a Shakespeare play, Manowar's reputation within certain US racing circles sometimes feels similar. To question his achievements is simply not the done thing. To many, he has long passed through the wormhole of history and can now only be viewed through the prism of myth. Two tempering factors are perhaps worth reflecting upon, one of quality and the other of quantity. First, the quality of US bloodstock improved, gradually but undeniably, between the start and the end of the 20th century, which doesn't undermine Manowar's incredible individual achievements but might put into question the overall strength and depth of his challenges. Second, in the lean years of World War I, there were a mere 1,680 thoroughbreds foaled in the US that year, the second lowest of the century, after 1919, and far fewer than in later years. 
perhaps reducing the chances of a genuine competitor for Man O' War to prove himself against. Which, again, he surely would have. Yet, at a time when heroes as timeless as Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey loomed so large in the US sporting public's eye, it is telling that the most popular of all of them was a headstrong horse whose trainer had once said of him that he was hell to break, a headache to handle and a catapult to ride. Perhaps, but he was also an imperious legend. That so many should have turned up for his funeral was unsurprising. For as was said in the eulogy that day, he touched the imagination of men, and they saw different things in him. But one thing they will all remember was that he brought exultation into their hearts. If you want to find out more about Man of War and some other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, available in bookshops and online now. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and explore the exploits of another great horse from another time who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.